Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and I have a special guest this morning. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is family court and what happens to women in custody fights, etc. And one of the most common things that I have seen that you can just kind of set your watch by is that in a divorce situation or a custody situation in our family courts with an abusive man, the woman is so frequently stigmatized and I guess the proper terminology is pathologized. In other words, she's crazy. She's crazy. That seems to be the go-to position and unfortunately, courts are buying that. So we have an expert with us, somebody who has studied this phenomenon. Uh, Suzanne Zarkour, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Suzanne, may I call you Suzanne? Yes, of course. Okay, great. She's a doctoral student at the University of Oxford. She's joining us from England. So thank you for joining us here, Suzanne. What what led you to do research into this area? Sure. I've always been interested in how we use language and how language is gendered. So that's one of my main areas of research, especially in French. So I'm uh, interested in how you know, we use our language to kind of perpetuate sexism. And one of the ways that we do that is with using different words to qualify the same behavior by men or by women. And one example is, as you said, calling women crazy, calling women hysterical. So I was quite interested in this phenomenon, and I thought researching how this happens in family courts would be particularly useful and interesting because we know that family uh, disputes in family courts and divorce proceedings are generally very tense. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of stakes, a lot of emotions, so I, uh, and very gender dispute. So that's why I wanted to research what happened when the fathers or courts or experts use these words. What are some of those words? I said a couple, but I'm sure with your research you found more. It just seems to me that it's the go-to position. She's crazy. She's crazy. I see that over and over, and then I see courts requiring some sort of mental health evaluations. I've seen psychologists and psychiatrists brought on board. And even though I'm a psychological or psychology PhD candidate, I mean, half the time, I think that those psych evaluations are garbage. (laughs) They, They don't see a broad picture. So what are some of the other terminologies you've heard? Yeah, so exactly. It's often words that are not really psychological diagnosis, it's pop psychology, right? So it's uh, hysterical, hysteria, neurotic, um, crazy, insane. Delusional is used a lot when women report family violence or domestic violence. So they're delusional, they're nuts. So all of these words that are clearly not serious mental health diagnosis. So there's not, it's not like we're making proper use of psychologists uh, expertise. It's really pop psychology that is getting into uh, the disputes with these um, these very gendered words. Okay, tell me a little bit about your your particular research into this area. How how did your study go? Yeah, I, I researched Canadian cases between uh, 2000 and 2016 that used these words: so hysterical, emotionally unstable, um, you know, sick in her head, etc. and then I found several hundred of cases and tried to see what were the, the themes and the problems that we could see with, uh, with these words. And the first thing that was very apparent is it's very gendered, 
right? It's mostly women who are described using these words. Although occasionally you can find a man described as hysterical, it's really not the dominant trend. And then what I did is analyze these cases and what is the use of these labels? Why are they used and who uses them? So I found that it's often used to either discredit the mother or to say she's a bad parent. And it's really often used by violent fathers or as a response, direct response to an allegation of conjugal violence or violence against the child. Okay, so in your research, you, you found most of the situations, you searched out those particular keywords in these court cases, and then you analyzed those court cases, and you found that they were predominantly court cases where there was domestic violence or abuse? Well, I studied a subset of the the cases, and as we know, it's hard to draw really precise statistics on that because often courts will not say that there's family violence or there will be hints or it will be euphemized, but it was definitely a recurring theme, and especially um, when fathers uh, use these words to attack mothers' credibility, it was often cases of uh, with allegations of family violence or conjugal violence. And yeah, as I said, sometimes even as a direct response. So, you know, he's violent. No, she's delusional. Yeah, yeah. And that's consistent with everything that I've heard too. It, it just, honest to goodness, I'm almost at the point where if somebody, uh, some, I'm talking to a man and he said he was divorced and his wife, his wife was mentally ill or, you know, I just, my, mm-hmm. my radar goes off and I think, uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's flag. like, do they get a manual? <laughs> do these guys get some sort of manual <laughs> or instruction sheet? And, you know, it, it just it knocks me out. She was a perfectly good mother until she said she wanted to get a divorce. Now, all of a sudden, she's crazy, and she's this, and she's that, and the other thing, you know. Um, and, and sometimes I think that these men actually do believe that, that, oh, my gosh, if she's leaving me, she clearly has mental issues, you know. Even have cases with with judges saying exactly that. So the few judges that are really more critical of these allegations, sometimes they say, well, you were quite happy with her being a stay-at-home mom until you divorce her, and suddenly she's unable to care for the children, and suddenly she's crazy. So some judges even call fathers out on this kind of double standard, right? Just because you divorce her, suddenly she's gone crazy. Wow, it's good to know that some judges are are aware of that. I, I have never heard of a judge calling out somebody for that. Um, which doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but I've just never heard of that. So yay for them, you know, for, for using some common sense. Okay, mm-hmm. so how many of these divorces did you look at? How, how, what was your uh, sample size? So uh, first of all, it's not only divorce cases, so it's all custody cases. And I started with uh, five, I found 500 relevant cases, um, well, cases that use these words, but then I studied in depth 120 of them. And so I focused on those where either the, the word appeared more than one time or it seemed to be more important or it was discussed in the judgment. And yeah, and then I ended up with 120 cases and most of them on uh, allegations that the mothers had uh, poor parental capacity. But also some of these cases were rather the mother is bringing these labels saying the father has called me crazy in the past and making kind of the case for um, verbal abuse. Uh, So that was another category of cases that I studied. That's a lot 
that that really you know you you didn't look at 35 or 40 you looked at 120 that's a lot and you said that your preliminary research was over 500 what time period was this was this from 2000 to 2016 is that what the yes the cases were in Canadian courts between 2000 and 2016 okay I'm why did you do this research? Why specifically courts? Uh, I mean, I I thought it was important to see these kind of discourses in action, and there's a lot of literature on the problems with family courts, and there's also a lot of literature on specifically, well, some literature on the problems of women who have uh, mental illnesses or who are, who are di- diagnosed with mental illnesses, but I thought that bringing together kind of the literature on um, gendered and sexist language and this knowledge that women who are diagnosed with mental illnesses are really, really penalized in custody cases. I wanted to see what about women who are quote-unquote normal but who receive these pop psychology labels. What happens to them? And I wanted to show how old women are vulnerable to being called crazy and um, being penalized in custody cases. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, I mean, I think that the research that you did of looking at the language is really telling, just very telling. What conclusions did you come to based on your research? So I concluded that uh, there's a lot of overlap between, uh, as we discussed, cases of domestic or family violence and these use of mental health labels. So we have to be very careful when this language gets used in court, a major problem is that judges are then have two allegations, the allegation that the father is violent and the allegation that the mother is crazy. And then the risk is that judges, thinking they're neutral, there will be, they will try to be, they think they're being like fair or neutral or equal towards both litigants and will push both issues aside or will think that both, allegations kind of balance each other out. So I think that's one of the major findings from my study. Judges are not are not giving proper attention to family violence, and violent fathers are using allegations of craziness to kind of hide and distract the courts from um, their violence. I also found that these myths or these, uh, this stigma obviously interact with other myths regarding family violence and domestic violence. For example, the myth that women will exaggerate the violence, um, that women lie when they denounce um, domestic violence. So all of this together kind of creates an additional layer of problems that the legal system has in seeing domestic violence. I had the privilege of interviewing a family court judge for this show. And she was recommended to me by several sources as a woman who really understood the whole dynamic of domestic violence. So I was very pleased to interview her, but it became clear to me during the interview she didn't get it at all. And yet her peers felt that she was just an expert on understanding domestic violence in the courts. Um, I asked her, when there are two people standing in front of you arguing over custody, one person has documented domestic violence in his background 
and yet you award custody to that person. Why? Can you tell me why? And her response was, well, you have to understand, you have two people in front of you, one of whom is hysterical and frantic, and one of whom has it all together. He's calm and in control. So, of course, we're going, unless the domestic violence, if it wasn't that bad, we're going to give the kids to him because she clearly doesn't have her life together. And I practically fell off my chair. And I thought, here is a woman for standing in front of you who is at risk of losing her children, and you expect her to be calm, controlled, and that defies logic. And it certainly defies the explanation that she understood domestic violence. Um, using this language, you, you mentioned that even the judges use it sometimes. And do you think that's, I don't, I don't know. Do you think that might be an underlying, you know, this, this prejudice against women? Um, and, yeah, I know I'm going to get the emails about how, you know, uh, the courts are prejudiced against women or against men. Uh-huh. But, yeah, 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 you know. Um, but it, it just is runs so deep. It's like all of those 1950s stereotypes or 1930s or 1800 stereotypes about women just being hysterical, um, you know, it, it, it just seems like it's still there in the court system. Is that consistent with yes, your finding? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so the judges often will not know or don't want to know, I don't know, that the, the behavior they're observing is often the consequence of the domestic violence, right? So it's quite normal to be upset when you're being brought to court and often, um, Violent men will use the courts repeatedly and know that they have, let's say, more money, more time. So the judges will observe that the the mother, as you said, she doesn't have it together, but then won't question why. And then maybe she has very good reasons to be upset. And the other issue that I think is a major problem is the fact that courts are encouraged to try to, you know, protect the relationship of the child with both parents. So then when you have a father who is, who appears to either will be apologetic or will appear kind of neutral towards the mother. And then the mother is saying, well, the father is violent, he's a bad father, etc." Then the courts will say, well, the mother clearly does not, um, is not trying to maintain the, the child's relationship with their father, so that's a problem. So they will force shared custody or even grant custody to the father because the mother does not appear kind of uh, cooperative. And that's a very big stereotype that women who denounce domestic violence are just being uncooperative. And that is something that I also found in other research regarding parental alienation cases. That's the basic idea. Women are not cooperating. And because they denounce family violence, then there's the danger that if you grant custody to the mother, she will kind of sabotage this relationship. And I think that's a, the the ideal of the, we're kind of trying to maintain this ideal of the perfect family with two parents who are equally involved and trying to enforce this model on couples that are, you know, there's violence, there's problems, there's high conflict. So that, that would be another main factor in addition to what you said about all the stereotypes about women being crazy and how we evaluate their behavior. Yeah. Um, there's a book and I've, I've spoken about this book before, but, it's called For Her Own Good, and it's been published for probably 
50 years. Um, and when I originally read it, it was called For Her Own Good, A Hundred Years of the Expert's Advice to Women. It's still being published, and now it's called For Her Own Good, 150 Years <laughs> of the Expert's Advice <laughs> to, to Women. Um, but it is, and I, I read it when I was very young, and it was an eye-opener for me because it associates things like language and women's experiences and, you know, the, 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 what, mother, what women and mothers are supposed to do. Um, but it ties it in with the social pressures of the time. So, for example, before World War I, you were supposed to take care of your family and you were supposed to be the mom and blah, 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 or World War II, rather. Then when World War II dropped out, all of a sudden you were horrible if you didn't take your kids and drop them off at, at grandma's and go work for the war effort. Well, then after World War II is over, we don't need you in the workforce anymore. So now you know what? If you're not the one raising your children intimately and exclusively, your kids are going to be crazy and be juvenile delinquents. It was an eye-opener for me because there is also a section on language and the difference between terminologies for a healthy woman versus a healthy man. Are you familiar with that book at all? Uh, no, but I will be <laughs> after our talk. <laughs> it just, you know, I mean, it just really opened my eyes at how if we as women do the same thing that the men do, somehow or other we're, we're not good people. Uh, it, the terminology is used differently. Um, they're, they are um, um, adventuresome, and we are crazy. We are, uh, you know, I, you, I'm, I'm getting a limp little response here, uh, or uh, limp little ideas of how to exam or explain what it, what it is I'm talking about. But do you know what I'm saying? Uh, how much yes, of this yes, is absolutely. social pressure? Yeah. Yes, and there's how much the, the, the same behavior from a, a man will be assertive and from a woman will be hysterical. And I think a, a major issue is that the range of acceptable behavior has, is still very narrow. So you need to take good, good care of your children. But if you're too close, if the relationship is too strong, then is there alienation? Then if you're not working, you're a bad mom. If you're working too much, you're a bad mom. So... And uh, the pressure is there and the range of possible life choices that women can make is very narrow. Yeah. And unfortunately, it seems like while the rest of society is moving forward a little bit on these issues, I don't see that court systems are. Why do you think this is happening? Why do you think that, uh, I know if, if a woman goes into court and makes allegations that her husband has mental health issues. I mean, I am not making this up. One of the women that I encountered did do that. She went into court and she made allegations that he was mentally ill because she found out that he was recently doing some things and she filed for divorce and included those things in her divorce papers. And the judge looked at her and he said, well, he, you didn't think anything about that before you filed for divorce. You're just trying to manipulate me. And yet men throw out those kinds of accusations all the time, and the judges goes, oh, we better get a psych eval on her. Yeah, it astonishes me that judges don't see what they're doing there, but they don't seem to. 
I think there's a very prevalent belief that family law advantages mothers, which is, of course, completely wrong and completely false and has been, you know, disproved, but it's still very much in popular understanding. Family law favors mother, disadvantages fathers. So I think maybe um, that can explain why judges are so um, desperate to appear gender neutral and to appear kind of fair to the men, maybe by discounting allegations of um, domestic violence or by being particularly suspicious. I think there's a timing issue, the idea that a woman who makes any kind of allegations at the time of divorce, it's suspicious because women just want to have custody and exclude men for their, their, from their lives and kind of the men are trapped in this unfair system. That's the belief. So instead of seeing that it's quite normal that a woman will make these allegations at the time of divorce, because when, when else would she make them? The judges immediately see it, I think, as suspicious. And I think, yeah, this underlying belief that somehow men are being, you know, cheated uh, or that, you know, feminists have kind of taken control over the courts may participate in these problems that we're discussing. Are you familiar with uh, Joan Meyer's study that came out last year? She um, analyzed a huge, I can't give you exact details on her um, um, survey methodology, but she um, had a very extensive, there have been studies that um, have gone on before, but they're generally done in a smaller restricted area, et cetera, on how judges are responding to this kind of thing. Her study was very sweeping and it was very telling. And I'm probably butchering the statistics a little bit, but it was something like if you, if you are an abusive man and you go to court and you fight for custody, you have an 80% chance of getting them. Even if, even though, even if mom doesn't have anything bad wrong with her, even, you know, she's not a drug addict or an alcoholic or, you know, something like that. The courts, when you talk about the courts bending over backward to appear objective is absolutely spot on. They are using that facade of equality and how they perceive things and they're bending over backwards to give men custody who shouldn't have it. They're abusive men. I don't understand why the courts do that. I don't understand. Is it just um, patriarchy? Is it, um, uh, you know, I mean, are, although I was going to say, are, are they just sexist? But I've, I've heard anecdotally that just as many women judges, if not more, make these kinds of egregious decisions. Do you have any uh, insight into that? I mean, I think it's a very interesting question because I don't know if it was from the same study of, or from another of her writing, but she also finds that when women have a new partner who is violent and then the father says, well, I need to have custody because the children are in an abusive household because my, you know, my ex's new partner is violent, suddenly they seem to get it <laughs> and they seem to think that, you know, being exposed to domestic violence is very terrible, and then they will grant custody to their father. So it's, it seems like it's not just that they don't understand domestic violence or the impact. So it's, it's really hard to say. I think it's kind of a many factors, the strong pressure to award, you know, shared custody or to appear neutral, then 
a lot of false beliefs that once their relationship is over, you know, the violence ceases or that domestic violence doesn't affect children. So I think there's kind of a lot of myths that come together and that lead to this result. But uh, there's no doubt that some judges or, you know, individual judges, they are sexist. But I think there's also an institutional problem or a broader problem that means that even judges who think they're doing the right thing, they can still be affected by these myths or by, by, this, by this more subtle language and arise to these really egregious conclusions. Yeah. I used to say that courts operate under three premises. One is she lies. The other one is that children, just because he was abusive to the mother doesn't mean that it will harm the children, which we know is absolute nonsense. And the third premise that they seem to operate under routinely is, um, oh, now it skipped my mind. So the, the, um, the, the premise that women lie, oh, oh and that uh, kids have to have a relationship with their father. They have to have that. Mm-hmm. And which gobsmacks me because I think, no, if you have a bad parent who's hurting you, why would you encourage a relationship with that? Um, and yet we do. Uh, we, we just go bend over backwards. The courts bend over backwards to maintain relationships with the fathers who have clearly exhibited aggressive and unacceptable behavior. Are we ever going to get rid of that? I mean, what what are we going to do about all of this stuff? Uh, the main thing, I guess, is to get the word out so that hopefully some people will recognize that this is occurring. Because I think that a lot of people right now don't even understand that this is occurring. So I, obviously one thing that we want to do is get the word out and show the studies and indicate that this really is happening. But is that going to be enough? Uh, probably not because there's, you know, evidence that what matters for the children is the quality of the relationship and not that much whether there's one parent or two parents. And it's a lot more important to evaluate whether this relationship is actually useful or harmful. So that, that is, I think, the worst part is that the science is there, but then maybe because everyone, is, you know, it's the kind of topic that everyone has an opinion on and no one will recognize they're not an expert. And then we have also proper experts that are you know, operating on these myths. But the idea that it's really common sense, like that children need both their parents, I think it's hard to question, even if we have the science that says no. And there's also um, studies, I'm thinking about a study by uh, Fiona Kelly that's called Enforcing a Parent-Child Relationship at All Costs. And she finds that courts will almost never say like, well, this is a relationship with the father that the child does not need. Anything that you can imagine the father doing, they will, you know, they will, might go as far as to say supervised access, rare access, but they will never just cease access. And this is the idea that kind of any father is better than no father, which is extremely problematic. And quite, it's hard also maybe to raise awareness of this because, well, I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but men get quite defensive <laughs> because, I don't know, maybe they, they feel that themselves they're not, you know, doing the right thing. I, I don't know why, but, I mean, I think if men are not themselves being 
violent and abusive. They shouldn't be that defensive, but uh, they are. And I think, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, again, with this myth that fathers are just going, you know, good fathers are being penalized and being falsely accused. We see the same thing with, uh, you know, rape allegations, you know, men saying, like, I've never done anything wrong, and yet I'm terrified that I will, I'm, you know, the next one. So it's it's quite, I don't know, let's say interesting <laughs> how this fear is kind of losing control. Um, yeah, so even when we try to, you know, raise awareness, there's always these myths and these fears and this desire for control that is that gets in the way. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's quite startling, really. Um, the other thing that seems to be the difference is that men who make these allegations, even even if they've had domestic violence, none of the courts seem to say, okay, we're just cutting him out of the picture. We're just going to cut him out of the picture because he's destructive and, and bad for the kids. But if a woman faces allegations that she has done something like bad-mouthing the father, the courts just leap to the opportunity, and they're very punitive to just completely cut her out of the, the kid's life. Yes, it's very, yeah. it's quite ironic because then we get, you know, the it's the mother is risk alienating the children. We wouldn't want that to happen because the child needs both parents, and then they will completely cut off the mother, and the result is still that the child has lost the parent. So quite ironic how this this is used by the courts. And I I agree. I think you're right. They they're not that careful about you know leaving out the mother. Well, they think they are. They think they really are. And and I uh, sometimes I mean I'm older than dirt, and I remember you know the feminist surge in the 70s. And sometimes I think that we shot ourselves in the foot with that because in an effort to get fathers to participate in, in children's lives, and they, there was this huge push that fathers can be just as good a parent as mothers. You know, you want them to be involved. And here it is, what, 40 years later, 50 years later, and, and we've, we're stuck with court systems that go, well, fathers can be just as good, and without even acknowledging or recognizing that this is a bad person, this is a, a harmful person. Um, it, it, it just gobsmacks me. I mean, it really does that courts don't see this. They think they're really being fair. They really do. And every mm-hmm. time I, I've I, spoken with a judge about this situation, they're actually quite smug about how, how fair they are in looking at the father. But as Meyer's study pointed out, they're, they're being fair, all right. They're being so fair that they're bending over backwards and, you know, and and giving giving child custody and giving credibility to dads that don't don't deserve it that shouldn't have it. It's also interesting how the financial responsibility and the responsibility for care work or you know custody rights have been tied together. So in Quebec, we have a quite strong fathers' rights movement. And at some point, they lost on the financial side. And, you know, um, child uh, support was, you know, taken automatically. And they, they completely lost the battle. And I think the, the father's rights, um, you know, activists, they realized that fighting the, 
the economic battle was getting very unpopular and saying, no, I don't want to pay for the support, you know, to support my kid. And I think they moved to share custody that is, you know, looks a lot better. It sounds egalitarian. And, but it's, I think it's still the money and in many cases, because what we have in Quebec, and I suspect it's similar in other jurisdictions, as soon as you get shared custody, the, you know, child support will drop dramatically, even though the costs for the mother are the same. She still needs, you know, an extra room in the, in the house and she lives close to the school and her work, etc. So it's, it has become, I think, uh, so I don't know if, if we shot ourselves in the foot or, or if the, the father's rights activists were kind of, I don't know, outsmarted us or they, I don't know what happened, but it, it has become this like shared custody proved to be a very good strategy for them because, you know, they keep the money, they keep the control over the, the family. And it sounds, it sounds just beautiful, you know, shared custody, everyone's equal. Well, the problem is, is that the courts don't seem to acknowledge that, I mean, study after study shows us that most people, the vast majority of people, go through a divorce, they all think they got a rotten deal, but they work it out. The cases that we're talking about that are the contentious ones, those have an overwhelming percentage of domestic violence and abuse in the, in the background. And it is usually the father against the mother. Um, and the courts seem to want, they don't, they don't want to acknowledge that they're dealing with a subset. And so they're making the rules based on normal people, normal divorces, normal dads and moms. And yet the subset that they're working with is not normal. Do you agree? Yes, absolutely. If for them to believe that every, almost every case they see is domestic violence would be for them to say, well, you know, all men are violent. But I, I think you're spot on. They, they don't realize that it's very rare for a couple to, or ex-couple to get to that stage or of actually litigating custody. And those cases are absolutely not the normal cases. But for the judge, it is. It's the case they see, it's, you know, they see every day. And it's not like the legal system is particularly good at recognizing problems of, you know, access to justice and lack of access of most normal people to the courts. So, um, yes, it's hard for the judges then to recognize that what they see as, on a daily basis could could be, you know, that many um, cases of violence. And it's the problem of them not seeing that there is, you know, maybe under, you know, a few percent, a very small percentage of the cases that they, that they see. But it's also this belief that violent men are some, somehow deviant and that they look like monsters and you can immediately recognize them. So if you see, uh, you know, a man who's a dentist or a doctor, you know, he has, he's rich, he looks, you know, he's white, <laughs> he looks like a, normal person like a good person it will be very hard for them to associate the fact that oh yes even normal men or men who appear completely normal can be violent because violence against women is so normative in our culture still so i think that's another mm -hmm. issue of them failing to see that well and i think that also another thing that they fail to see is that 
um, domestic, you know, 30 years ago, domestic violence uh, and society has done a pretty good job of, of educating ourselves that it's not okay to hit. It's not broken bones. Black eyes are not okay. But somehow we haven't gotten the message across that some of the other forms of domestic violence, coercive control, um, uh, you know, so, some of those things, and studies show that women who experience both would much rather have the broken bone because that heals faster. When they start doing the, this stuff where they're messing with your head, it, it's, it's there for a really long time, if not forever. And I think that uh, I, I, I don't think that judges and I don't think most people in, in the public understand that there's some really egregious things that abusers can do to women uh, without breaking their bones. Agreed. And if we see in TV shows, in movies, it, domestic violence is always portrayed or almost always portrayed through physical violence. And that's also something I have found in my study. Sometimes the judges will say, you know, well, there's, you know, insults and, oh, yeah, well, well, he called her a slut, but they don't, they don't see that as verbal violence or uh, emotional violence, and it, they don't see that in the context of domestic violence. So I yeah, completely agree. And also, as you said, it's not just judges. Most people cannot recognize domestic violence, and it's terrifying because that includes women, right? Like many women, they were not taught what domestic violence looks like and we're not taught yeah. to see these these signs and then that's how you you end up with women who are killed by their partners because the violence escalates but then by the time the the violence looks like what we're taught to expect or to, or to recognize that domestic violence is way too late she's she's trapped and controlled so it's it's a major issue then this lack of yeah. understanding of what it really looks like in your study, I'm sure this is not a, a question that you were particularly looking at, but what can we do about that? I hear people say routinely, well, we need to educate, we need to educate judges. But I got news for you. You can't educate anybody who doesn't want to be educated. And mm -hmm. although I've certainly met some very aware, socially aware judges, they're pretty much few and far between in my experience. If you think you're doing everything just fine, you don't have the motivation to become educated in this field. Um, is, do you have any insights um, based on, you know, it can be anecdotal insights, but based on, on what you've seen, do you have any insights into what we might do about this problem? I mean, there are occasionally the better cases or, you know, cases where the judges will say, for example, the father of conviction that the mother is crazy makes shared custody impossible or, you know, finding that, you know, domestic violence um, is, cannot uh, coexist with shared custody. But as you said, is the exception rather than the rule. I think there's still something that the law can do in reversing this trend towards shared custody and in different ways. So in many jurisdictions, shared custody has become either the, the norm in the law or the informal norm. So, but all of these jurisdictions are generally centered on the best interest of the child. And as we know, it's super vague and you know, not that helpful. So I think the law needs to say 
either, uh, well, we need to say very clearly, domestic violence precludes any form of shared custody. I think that's the rule that must come first, even before asking what's in the best interest of the child, we need to scan for violence. And then maybe also something that, what, that could help is replacing this shared custody default with the um, uh, main caregiver default. So, you know, by default, the person who has the most cared about the child should have custody or should have the primary decision-making abilities because it's not all, only where the child resides, it's also whether even if the mother has custody, whether the father can oppose every single decision and bring her to court. So I think that might be an, an option. It's um, not very popular to have a kind of a presumption um, towards mothers because it goes against all these, this, you know, formal equality. But I think a presumption towards the person, the parent who has cared the, the most for the child would be a good start. And then could be maybe rebutted for the cases where, you know, both parents are able to um, collaborate and are good parents. But for sure, I think the law needs to take a much um, stronger stance in saying that the first uh, thing that we need to look at is domestic violence and violence against the child, which currently can be reconciled with the best interest of the child because of what we said earlier, right? The father is not great, but it, it is in the interest of the child to have two parents, and that's hugely problematic. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had mentioned earlier uh, parental alienation, and of course, anyone who's halfway knowledgeable uh, understands that that's garbage. <laughs> that's a lot of garbage. <laughs> It's, it's, it's been discredited by everyone from the Bar Association to the Psychological Association. Um, mm -hmm. And yet judges just still buy that. They still buy it. And I, I, why? <laughs> why are they so wedded to this concept? I, I mean, the only thing, and, and I hesitate to say patriarchy, because you use that word and you immediately shut off discourse because there's a certain percentage of people mm -hmm. that just go, oh, roll their eyes and oh, brother, you know. And and I try yeah. to stay away from words that will shut off discourse. I really do. However, it's hard to look at these court situations without going, hello, patriarchy, sexism. Um, <laughs> is that how you're, you have seen this based on your research or are you uh, more able to um, uh, stop uh, your, you know, seeing it from a different perspective than just the sexism, patriarchy kind of thing? Well, I mean, I think patriarchy is a good explanation for most things that happen in the world. But in the precise case of parental alienation, I think that's somewhere where lack of education is really a problem. So I think on domestic violence, it's hard for judges to, you know, some judges will just Clearly, they don't want to get it, and it's not an, you know, educating them problem. But I think on parental alienation, most judges have no idea where it comes from and that it has been discredited and that it has been, you know, who invented it. And so in, my, in a study I did on parental alienation in Quebec, found that judges have no idea what that means. And, you know, you see the definition. Well, first of all, there's no definition everywhere. Or if there is, the definitions are very inconsistent. So I think in the case of parental alienation, I'm a bit more optimistic in the sense of thinking, I think they just really don't know. And 
it's kind of something, the concept has been really mainstream and people have a vague idea and will use the terms you know, alienation, alienating, but then they don't, I think once you start explaining, well, you know, that's the, the history of the term that, you know, how, as you said, has been really discredited. I think, I think there's, there's hope for judges to be like, oh, I didn't know that. And maybe we should use other, other uh, terms. The second problem, I think, with parental alienation is that occasionally it will, it's mostly used by men, right? But occasionally it will be used by women, uh, the, the term, the allegation. So in my study, there are a few cases where women win because the judge says, well, you know, saying that the mother is crazy is alienating behavior, therefore the mother gets custody. So I think there's a kind of a, a need or maybe women's groups are not ready to entirely reject parental alienation and we're not really clear on the message. Are we saying it's not being used well? Are we saying it doesn't exist at all? Are we saying it exists but it has another definition? So I think that may be part of the problem that there's kind of, it's not 100%, right? And it's hard for people to see patriarchy when it's not 100%. We, we just need to hear, you know, the people who keep saying, well, men get raped too, as if that's a response to the fact that, you know, rape is sexist. So I think that that, that might be a problem. And it's a problem that, uh, you know, John Mayer had said, like, well, if we actually were able to look at domestic violence, women would not need to use this, you know, try to use this patriarchal concept to their advantage because the, the courts could just say, well, this is domestic violence and you don't get custody. But because this doesn't happen, some women have to use this label. And then it, I think it creates kind of a, a mixed message. So I've recently spoken out against uh, parental alienation and get, got messages from practitioners to say like, well, you're crazy. I, you know, I use that with both men and women, and they don't see that even though they may use this for mother, mothers and fathers, overall, the trends, and, you know, if you look at it, you know, systematically, it's clearly a concept that's mostly used by fathers to, again, pathologize uh, women. So, yeah, <laughs> many issues coming together, but... Yeah, I, I think there's there's still a lot of education to be done on this concept uh, among judges and lawyers and even the experts who are writing these experts' reports for the courts to use. Yeah, and and I already expressed my my wholly unpopular opinion that most of the experts who are writing these evaluations just don't have a clue. They they just <laughs> do not have a clue. You know, I mean, yeah, I, like I'm not planning on. Yeah, I'm not planning on doing clinical um, psychology, so perhaps I look at it differently. But it seems to me that when somebody is coming to you because they're having issues, that they you need to understand that what they're telling you may be their truth, but maybe not necessarily the whole truth or the universal truth, and take it with a grain of salt. And yet these psychologists in these kinds of cases over and over and over, uh, I mean, I've seen court reports where, well, mother is mentally ill and father said, but you know, and they can buy everything the father says. And how, I, to me, that's irresponsible. You know, you might be able to say in your report that dad says mom is crazy, but 
that's different from saying mom's crazy and I'm an expert and I should know, you know? So anyway, and so many issues. Um, Suzanne, I would love it if you could come back and we could have another conversation someday. Tell me what's in the future for you as far as research is concerned. So at the moment I'm doing my, I'm finishing my first year uh, at the University of, of Oxford doing my doctoral degree and I'm researching uh, sexual violence. So how the legal system conceives of sexual violence and trying to use the ideas of coercive control and trying to use domestic violence literature to replace the problem of rape as a problem of control and domestic violence. So I would be more than happy <laughs> to, to talk to you about it. So Great. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going okay. in well, this well, direction. I'm going to invite you back, but I'm going to cut you off, Suzanne, because we've got 10 seconds left before we, we uh, run out of time. Thank you so much, Suzanne Zarkor. Please join us again later on Three Women, Three Ways.